We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the show. I'm Chris Van Vliet, and if it's your first time here, I'm an Emmy award-winning TV host obsessed with finding out what makes successful people so successful. On each episode of Insight, we have in-depth conversations and reverse engineer the habits and techniques of the world's top actors, athletes, entrepreneurs, you name it. If they are the best at what they do, I want to get their insight so we can apply it to our own lives. And you know Freddie Prince Jr. for movies like She's All That, Summer Catch, I Know What You Did Last Summer, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo 2, Down to You. I mean, that's just a handful of the films that he's been in. And I can't even begin to tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. Because for someone that's achieved the level of success and the level of fame that he has, he's just a great guy. Someone you'd want to have a beer with if that was, you know, a thing we could do right now. Oh, and by the way, his wife is incredibly successful in her own right. Actually, you know, I don't I don't think Freddie would mind me saying this because it's true. She's actually more famous than him. You know, in case you didn't know, his wife is Sarah Michelle Geller, aka Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's really interesting hearing about Freddie's love-hate relationship with Hollywood, how he left his acting career behind to focus on being a dad. But now he's back in acting. He's back in the reboot of Punky Brewster on Peacock. We talk all about that and, of course, his time working in WWE. Both times. Both times. He's been employed by WWE twice and has a lot to say about what goes on behind the scenes there. Also, so interesting hearing him talk about behind the scenes in movies. Shirtless scenes, kissing scenes. We talk about it all. Take a screenshot, share it on social media. Tag me. I'm at Chris Van Vliet on both Twitter and Instagram. Tag Freddie. On Twitter, he is at RealFPJr. And on Instagram, he is at RealFreddyPrince. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if that happens to be Apple Podcasts, 
I will be forever indebted to you if you could leave a review on there. Like this one here from Sound of Settling. That's what it's called. That's the username, at least. The title is Awesome Podcast. Started listening to the podcast specifically for wrestlers, but quickly became a fan of Chris's ability to not have an interview, but an actual conversation. Hearing his guests go from guarded at the start to quickly realizing that he wants to truly hear their story is amazing. Love the podcast and look forward to all the future content. Well, I appreciate the kind words, my friend. And I look forward to the future content as well because we are just getting started here. And I'll continue reading one review on every single episode as my way to say thank you so much. We're, we're aiming for 2,000 reviews before my birthday, before May 19th. And by the way, if you listen on Spotify or Stitcher or Google Pod, Pod, Podcasts or any other platform, I'm equally as grateful for you. They just don't have reviews. So I, that's why I read the reviews from Apple Podcasts. Let me tell you, what a treat this was. Talking to Freddie Prince Jr. We cover so many things I didn't expect to cover. Like his amazing stories with Muhammad Ali and Chuck Norris. This is so good. Please welcome the legendary Freddie Prince Jr. All right, man. We are doing this. FPJ, CVV. Do people, do people actually call you FPJ? Um, my wife did and changed my whole nickname until then most people called me fjp because my middle name was james or is james and uh when sarah met me she only knew me as freddie prince jr and she called me fpj and it just stuck so she hung that on me so yeah it, it's it's totally but legit. it'd be fjpj which like doesn't it. flow no does that mean you called sarah smg no, because I play, grew up playing Call of Duty, and that's the submachine gun. Um, <laughs> so I just call her Sarah. <laughs> Where in Los Angeles are you? Uh, we're in like the Brentwood area, basically. Okay. I'm in Studio City, so not too far oh, nice. away from you. Yeah, I grew up down there. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It's my pleasure, man. It's my pleasure. I got a little uh, extra time today. We were supposed to do it yesterday, and I didn't press send on a stupid message, and I'm so sorry. No, it actually worked out well. I live in an apartment building here. And right as we were about to do the interview, they came in to like replace sprinklers and they were making a lot of noise. I'm like, yeah, that, would that wouldn't have worked out. <laughs> but you've been pretty busy. You've been filming Punky Brewster, which I think for a lot of people who are around my age are going to be yeah. like, Punky Brewster's back? Well, that's what I thought. Um, I was done. Like I wasn't acting anymore. I just wanted to write stuff and do my game channel. And uh, I was literally writing season four of WWE's Up, Up, Down, Down's rollout, their D&D game. I did their season three. And uh, so I was doing a Wild West for them this time, which would be D&D, but in the Wild West, they'll go through a portal. And uh, I grew up watching Quantum Leap, sorry. And uh, my uh, my buddy called me, this, this actor that I'd worked with before, and he said, hey, they're remaking Punky Brewster and they really like you to play the dad. And I was like, nah, man, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack right now. And he was like, dude, it's, it's a recurring. He's like, and it shoots in LA. And he was like, just read it. It's good. You'll love Soleil. I've known it's Brian Austin Green was the one telling me this. Oh, he goes, wow, yeah. he goes uh, I do it, but I booked a job and I can't. And I was like, oh, all right, I'll read it. And so I didn't read it for like two days because I was writing stupid Dungeons and Dragons stuff. That's more important to me. And he called me again and he was like, you jerk. I told him you were going to read it. 
and you didn't. He's like, read the script. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So we hung up and I read the script and I laughed like five or six times in a 22 page script. And it made me feel so good. And they were, they said, uh, I called him. I said, I liked it. And uh, they said it'd only be like three or four episodes, which was perfect. And it'd be in LA. And I just needed to meet with Soleil. And so I got to meet with Soleil, the original Punky Brewster. Yeah. And we were on the Universal lot and we were eating in and out burgers under the clock tower from Back to the Future. Oh my gosh. And, one of the, and we're just talking about the show and seeing if we dig, like if we click, right? And uh, this girl comes up who works at Universal. She looks like a host, right? And uh, this is pre-COVID. And she says, I'm so sorry, you guys. There's about to be a wedding proposal here at the clock tower. I don't want to ask you to. And Soleil and I both jump up and we're like, oh, my God, don't apologize. We're gone. So we run over to this little alcove. And if they ever open the tour again, you'll see it. If you're facing the clock tower to the left, there's like the stairs that go nowhere. So we sit on the stairs and just continue talking. And all of a sudden, that same host comes up with the girl, with the girl she's going to propose to. And we're both like, oh, my God. And the tram car pulls up as she gets on one knee and it's playing the Back to the Future theme music. Oh, on the no. wow. And the whole tram car starts clapping and they're like, yay, she said yes. She said yes. And I kind of looked at Soleil and I was like, yeah, I'll, let's do this show. And it it was just, a, What a magical moment. <laughs> it just felt great. So I did the pilot and the kids are real, real special. And a couple of them have enough experience that, that you're not just seeing their talent, you're seeing them apply skill to their talent. And uh, I just remember having this awesome experience. And at the end of the pilot, they said, hey man, we loved you. Would you be a series regular? And it just felt, I've been in this business long enough to know when something feels good, yeah. you ride that wave. You're gonna get waves that yeah. suck, but it's the wave you're on. You can either bail out or ride it in and paddle out again. And this was a great wave and I recognized it at 44. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, man. I didn't even tell my agent. I was like, dude, I'll do it every episode if you want. I'll be here. And they wow. called my agent and he called me the next day or my manager rather. And he was like, what are you a series regular now? I was like, yeah, man, let's just make it work. And I really, I really loved working there. And so we did it. It's on Peacock. And uh, we finished our whole first season right before they shut LA down again. And uh, none of us got it. We were healthy and smart and we we wore our masks and we got through it. And I had an absolute blast, man. And the, I think the thing about being a series regular is it's like a Monday to Friday job, which is really cool. It is. And a sitcom is a favorable schedule, but I'm a, I'm a full-time father, man. You know what yeah. I mean? So I, it was important to me to, to be home. And once I had kids, I really took a step back. Um, and started pursuing other things. I mean, I, you know, I worked for WWE, you know what I mean? Like I did all yeah. kinds of weirdo stuff and was just really done with the business. You know, I, I always was wary of it because of the tragedy uh, of my father in this business before me. For those of you who don't know, look him up. It was Freddie Prinze. Um, He did way too many drugs in the seventies, got way too famous, way too quick. And he died. Um, So, you know, I've always kind of, had like that Heisman stiff arm out towards the business, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. But yeah. uh, once, once uh, I felt I accomplished my goals, it was easy to walk away. And that was literally like, I think two weeks later, I, I went to WrestleMania, met with someone who worked at WWE and they're like, yo, you need to work here. I was like, wow. okay. And I took the job. <laughs> you know, you could have had that Heisman stiff arm up for your entire life. I mean, you grew up in Albuquerque. You were the furthest thing away from Hollywood. Yeah. What man. made you start to go down that path? This this story is 
beautiful to me, but when people hear it, they always go, ah, but it doesn't suck. It's actually good. So my grandfather never liked my dad. He always told my mom, you know, he's going to fool around on you. He's not going to be reliable. By the way, everything my grandfather said was true. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like my dad was fooling around with Pam Greer, with Rachel Ward, with, with uh, the mom from Growing Pains, Joanna Kerbs back in the day. Like he was, he was running around and he hurt my mom real, real bad. And my grandfather never got over it. Mm -hmm. And when I was six, 17, 16 years old, uh, he had cancer and it was to the point where we put him on hospice care. I mean, you can bring him home because he doesn't have much time left and he should pass with his family, right? So his name was Ben, toughest dude I know. He looked like Popeye the Sailor Man. Not joking. Just like Robin Williams dressed up as Popeye in the movie. <laughs> and he had anchor tattoos from being in the Navy course, on the USS wow. Nevada, which was like the only ship that escaped Pearl Harbor. He was an engineer. He worked in the engine room. He said, I never saw, I, he said, I never saw the war, but I heard every bomb drop. That's what he told me when I was like 12. So uh, so he's in his, he's in his uh, hospice bed, his death. I know that's morbid, but sure. The beautiful man lived a long life. He's in his eighties. And, uh, my granny said, uh, Hey, your papa, that's what I called him. She said, your papa wants to, uh, wants to talk to you. And we knew this was like the last couple of days. So I go in there and, uh, he takes my hand and he was always so friggin' strong. Like as an, I never beat him in arm wrestling, never saw him lose in arm wrestling. And, uh, his grip wasn't as strong. And so right away I was real, just 15, 16 and emotional and, and a little scared. And he says, uh, did you clean your room today? And I said, yeah. And he goes, ah, oh, I'm so proud of you. Mm. And then your 15 year old brain, I'm, you're like, all right, proud of me for cleaning my room. Like <laughs> I didn't know that's how he was trying to show love, you know? And yeah. then in the same breath, in the same damn breath, he says, you know, your father really screwed things up for this family and it's up to you to fix it. And he wow. died an hour later. He wow. died an hour later. So he just dropped this, this albatross necklace around my neck and yeah. said, sail away. And uh, so as soon as I graduated high school, the day I gra- I don't even think I went to my graduation. I think it was the day I was done with school. LA was closer than New York. I moved back to LA, which is the city I was born in. Yeah. And uh, moved into one of my godfather's apartments in Burbank. And started the journey, man. Started the journey. Well, not only, you know, did you have the legacy, you had your father's name, which yeah. you could also, you know, have to try to live up to. Yeah, it's weird. Any junior can relate to this. When you're a junior, you're you're basically a statue built to honor that which walked before you. Ooh, yeah. And it's difficult. It, it's it's not a weight, so to speak. It's it's a prison. But it's, you're not in a cell, you're in a hallway that never ends. And you've already gone too far to ever go back. Mm. And there's no doors on the wall. So you can't take these like side exits. So a lot of people turn to other things to sort of find an escape, unhealthy things, drugs, alcohol, stuff like that. Or in my case, my godfather, fortunately, I've lived a blessed life, man. My father charmed a lot of people who, when he died, they weren't going to let that happen to me. So one of those men was Bob Wall. And Bob was the man who trained Bruce Lee when Bruce came to America. And the guy Bruce beat up in all his movies. He was Carl Miller, the guy with the scar down his eye. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Him in his nutsack and was like, you lose, Carl Miller. That's my godfather. Wow. So I turned to martial arts. And that's what really was my escape, was getting to spar. He introduced me to jujitsu in 19... 19- 
89, I think it was, with Jean-Jacques Machado. And I thought I was a hot shit little junior wrestler. And he just clowned me in two seconds, had me on his shoulders <laughs> and spinning me around going, which window, which window? Like he's going to throw me out. And I was just hooked. And when you're trying to keep someone from choking you out, you can't think, woe is me. I didn't get to have a sandwich with my dad. I didn't, you don't get to have any of those thoughts or you go to sleep. So yeah. it was a huge escape for me and really benefited me uh, much more so when I got on my own path and uh, started becoming successful in my own right. Yeah. Dealing with all the outside pressures of the business, some of them which really beat me down. And mm. some which I was able to shake off, you know, it's, it's different for everybody. But uh, martial arts was a savior for that. It's all because of my godfathers, guys like Bob Wall, Judo Gene LaBelle, which uh, was the LaBelle lock for Daniel Bryan in a while. Yes. That was the guy who used to choke me out, man. Like, <laughs> he, I call him Uncle Gene. Like, he taught me the rear, the, the standing front choke and said, man. do it to your friends. Like, those were the guys that that really made sure I stayed humble and connected to what was important and not get not get sidetracked they really yeah. shattered those walls down that i felt trapped in and showed me this much broader road that i could be on didn't you also train with like muhammad ali and chuck norris okay so it's sort of so when i was 15 i won a big karate tournament out here in, in uh california or in, in nevada and i thought i was hot stuff and my <laughs> godfather said, uh, he goes, oh, yeah, I think you're pretty good. He lived in Tarzana, California on, on a street called Donna, Ventura and Donna. They don't live there anymore. And two houses down was Chuck. And these guys were just frat boys. Like they were old men that would go to the UCLA bars, start fights with linebackers, win, and then go home. Okay. Like that's what these guys used to do. So I go over to Chuck's and I had known Chuck since I was born, basically, um, he was at my first birthday party and my godfather let me smash my face in the cake because he was like, nah, you should do that. My mom's like, no, don't let it. He's like, no, nah, he's a boy. Let him be a boy. And so I go over there and I was, I won the tournament because I was a good boxer and Taekwondo guys back then had no hands. They were all kicks. And as long as you stepped inside, it was a wrap. So I had a great jab and I'm a Southpaw, but I would fight Orthodox. So my left hand was a really clean jab and I'm popping that jab out there with Chuck Norris. Okay. Just pop, pop. <laughs> pop thinking I'm hot stuff right and he doesn't like his whole thing was he never sparred hard he would always let guys win and then when he go to tournaments he would turn it on right and no mm. one ever understood like man I'm beating this guy's ass in class and he's killing everybody in these tournaments so that's just his style so he threw one wheel kick and this is the man who taught me how to throw a wheel kick <laughs> and he and my jab's out like this and he hit me in the rib and he broke my rib Oh, I dropped. I didn't know it was broken. I just knew I was hurt. Sure. I dropped to the ground and they're all laughing at me like, ah, oh, you knocked the wind out of him. And I'm like, <laughs> I think I was crying probably. Chuck felt terrible when he realized I was really hurt. Um, and so my godfather picks me up, walks me back to his house where I was staying at the time. And my godmother, her name's Lillian. She's like five foot two. My godfather's just like six one, just stud, right? Big badass guy beats up linebackers. He's an old man now. He can still whip my ass just for calling him an old man. He will the next time I see him. And we walk in the house and she finds out what happens. And you find out real quick who runs that house. She dressed him down. I mean, it was a Vince McMahon level promo when he would hate a match to the point where Bob went from standing to sitting like a child in the kitchen, like uh, breakfast nook, 
just taken this beat, this verbal beating. And she's scared. Lillian's scared. She's like, you broke Kathy, my mother, Kathy is going to shoot Chuck Norris. And my mom would, she was crazy. She's the licensed gun owner. <laughs> so she was like, we can't even tell her or she's seriously going to kill him. And then she's going to kill you. So I got to stay in California for the whole summer. My godfather lied to my mom, said, hey, he's loving it out here. We're going to take him surfing. My daughters are going to take him shopping for new clothes. They actually did do that. That part wasn't a lot. Oh, that's good. I had sick clothes when I got back to Albuquerque. And girls actually liked me for the first time. because My <laughs> older god sister, Shannon, taught me how to talk to girls. She's like, you're too nice. Be a jerk until they grow up then be the nice guy you are and it worked um so i got to stay in california the whole summer with a broken rib um but that was the chuck norris story the ali story was my father my father was friends with ali and ali used to spar with him and whip his ass and not even be like nice about it just like pepper him up wow and my dad loved it so he started training with Bob Wall, because Bob was the guy who trained all the famous people back then in the 70s. He taught Steve McQueen how to fight. He taught James Garner how to fight. All these like wannabe tough guys who weren't, they weren't shit until they started training with real tough guys and learned how to fight. So my my godfather teaches him the left hook, like just a real clean left hook. Yeah. My dad was orthodox. So one day they're at Ali's house and uh, they're sparring in the living room and my dad catches Ali with the left hook. And Ali doesn't fall, but the couch is behind him. So it sits him down. And oh. my dad did a mean Muhammad Ali impression. Look it up on YouTube. He beat up George. My dad hosted The Tonight Show for Carson when he was 21 years old and did a bit with George Foreman where my dad was Ali and George played George. And my dad knocks out George Foreman. They reenact Zaire. And then he had Paul Williams, who wrote The Rainbow Connection, as, as the second guest. I think George was first. So anyway... He catches Ali. Ali goes down. My dad does his Ali impression, runs in the bathroom, grabs a towel, wipes the blood off Ali's nose, gave him a bloody nose, jumps in his 75 metallic blue Corvette Stingray and hauls ass home. By the time he gets home, Ali's already called the house, yelled at my mother, you tell that boy I'm going to kill him the next time I see him. But my mom thinks he's serious. So my dad gets home. My mom's screaming and yelling, oh, Muhammad Ali's going to kill you. What did you do? She's freaking out. He's like, no, no, no. He explains the situation. And he got it framed on crushed purple velvet, like a, like a war medal, right? And then wow. framed in dark wood with a placard. And it says Ali's blood. It was right before my dad's birthday. I think it says June 19th, June 20th, 1975. And my mom still has it to this no day. way. I've asked her for it a million times, and she literally has told me to my face, when I'm dead, you can have it. <laughs> this is the greatest story of all time. I'm telling you, man, I'm, my dad, he touched a lot of souls, and all those souls really blessed me. So I have lived a charmed life. I always try to make that clear. Yeah. I'm, I'm you know, we had hard times, but as far as like people looking out for me and making sure that bad stuff didn't happen to me. Ain't nobody ever had it better than I did. Yeah, hey, your dad died when you were really young. You were one, right? So not even man. Ten not even old. one. Ten months. So old. how did you get to know your father as you started to get a little bit older? Uh, comedy clubs. I've mm. been in them since I was twelve years old. Even when I wasn't allowed to be in them, uh, and I would bring spiral notebooks just like this, which I still write all my D and D stuff in. Um, oh. you can even, this is a sea of thieves one that I'm getting ready to do. Look at that. Um, but I would go and I would write down as fast as I could, all the comics jokes. I'm a sixth grader, mind you. Um, every summer break, every winter break that I could get out here, I wouldn't, even when I was 18 and moved out, I would go almost every night. 
and I would write down the joke and then I would write down on a level of one to five, how loud the audience laughed. And I would learn. And a lot of these comics, when they would get off stage, would tell me stories about my dad and comics do not hold back. I remember old school legends like Bobby Slayton, this old like New York comic. And he'd be like, oh, your father was such a piece of crap. Anytime, anytime there was a girl, I'd put like two, three hours to talk into. He'd just walk up and steal her from me. Fuck him. He was a funny guy, though. He was a funny guy. And then like walk away. I'm 12. Okay. I'm 12 and hearing this stuff. <laughs> Richard Pryor was the same. Richard Pryor discovered my dad. He discovered wow. my father and got him his manager. They had the same manager who I call Uncle Ron to this day. And Richard was in love with Pam Greer. So when Pam fell in love with my dad, Richard lost it. He just lost it. And he made my uncle Ron pick. He's like, you got to pick, you got to pick. And he picked my dad, which was a mistake, (laughs) but he picked my dad and Richard was super pissed. So when I first met Richard, he was, um, he was already pretty sick and, uh, he held my hand in a similar way. My grandpa did. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, he said, boy, your father was a motherfucker but he was a funny motherfucker mm. and I loved him with all my heart. And I started crying. We're in the Mitzi's comedy store and he was going to perform. And I'm like, how is this guy going to perform? They wheeled him up on stage. He's in a damn wheelchair and they adjust the mic for him. And it's so tense in there because nobody wants to see a hero fail. You don't want to see Joe Namath stumble. You don't want to see, you don't want to see people who you, you don't want to see Mike Tyson get knocked out. If you, you know what I mean? You don't want to see a legend fail. Yeah. And so it's so tense in there and his voice was weak. And I, he says, uh, I, w- I was at a multiple sclerosis function with, with Annette Fonicello and the whole crowd's just like, Oh no. Oh no. And then he says, I don't know how vulgar I can be on your. Yeah. Whatever. It's the internet. <laughs> okay. He says, uh, so he says, I was at a, an MS function with, with Annette Fonicello and she sucked my dick. And he, <laughs> All of a sudden, this like fire lit in his eyes and they went from sleepy to wide open. And he did this four minutes on a blowjob from Mickey Mouse Club Girl. And (laughs) as it ended, his energy kind of faded and his helper came up and he said, well, I guess that's all the time I get now. And they wheeled him off stage and I went up, I gave him a big hug and he said, I love you. And then, uh, and they, they took him away as that was the only time I ever ever saw and met him, man. But yeah, a lot of this is all just because of, of my father and people's guilt, which is unnecessary. They, they shouldn't feel guilty. He made his own choices. Um, but, uh, their guilt has forced them to be more than generous with me over, Mm. over the last 44 years of my, still to this day, man, I've even given some of those spiral notebooks that I wrote the jokes in to the comics who did it years later. I gave one to Chris Titus. I was like, yo, these are jokes you wrote in 1992. And these are, these are the responses from the audience. And he was like, are you kidding me? Why are you even allowed in there? I was like, dude, my dad gave Bud a startup money for that club in 1975. Do you think that you'd be the man that you are now if your father wasn't the man that he was? Uh, No, I think I'd be a, a, a screw up. I'd probably be like most successful guys, fathers who don't have to be anything but their father's son mm. um, and don't have to make their own bones. And it doesn't matter if they fail because they know there's a net underneath them. It's a lot scarier to people always go, if you don't take a chance, you won't make anything happen. Well, that was pre-internet when people shamed you for failure <laughs> instead of saying, yo, man, just try again, dude. The richest people in the world failed more than they succeeded. Right. Um, so 
you know, I, I was real blessed in that regard. That sounds weird, but because of his mistakes and the failures he made, they were painful, brutal lessons, but lessons just the same. Sure. Um, and I had a lot of great men in my life to be role models for me and show me what a man is all about and how a man's supposed to behave and, and more importantly, how one's not. So, you know, I don't, I want for a father, but I don't want for anything. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Of course that makes sense. I feel like this has made you an incredible father because of the fact that you didn't have a father growing yeah. up. That was always the most important. That's why I said it was easy to walk away from a business. Like once my kids were born, that was it. Like it, it just, I just want to hang with my kids. I want to be with my kids. You know, I, I write a lot of like uh, RPG stories and stuff. And my daughter just started doing it. Like she's starting to do what her daddy does. Wow. Um, Rocky's starting to take, you know, his boxing and martial arts a little more seriously because he sees his dad out back working hard. And so now I'm not asking if he just comes out and goes, dad, can I box with you? And he's eight, you know what I mean? So he's got that eight-year-old voice, which I'll be so and sad. And his name's Rocky. Does. Of course he's going to be a boxer. I know. What can I do, man? Like, <laughs> I'm such a mark for, uh, I love Sylvester Stallone. He's like my hero. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so, so when you walked away from acting, did you and Sarah have a conversation of like, I'm just going to walk away. You keep doing this. We're both going to walk away. Like what? <laughs> she knew, she knew before we ever even dated. <laughs> I've always been real upfront and, and, and honest and open about, uh, my feelings for this business, uh, the, the people in it, um, the people that you're forced to deal, forced to deal with and have to, if you want to be successful, uh, some of the sacrifices necessary to achieve what you want are just sacrifices. I was never willing to make, man. Like, it's just not, I just was wired different. I was wired yeah. by a bunch of old school karate guy, meatheads you know, that love their wives, but they didn't take any BS. And in this business, you have to be able to put up with BS. You have to be able to put up with small talk and chit chat. And I just can't, like, I can't even do it for 30 seconds, Chris. I'm not even joking. I'm literally like, okay, so let's get to the point here. And it offends people. Mm. So I'm just like, I'm not going to change. I'm 44 years old. Like those days are done, man. You could change the little things about your personality, but once you get to that one part, yeah. That's it. You either put the toilet seat down or you don't, you know, like it is what it is. So if you grew up going to comedy clubs, your father is a comedic legend. How did you not go down that path? No. Are you crazy, dude? Are you crazy? Look, you got the chops. You're hilarious. Brother, there's funny. And then there's like stand-up comics. Like my dad, and you can ask legend, ask people like Jerry Seinfeld, ask, ask, George Carlin back in the way you can't now, but you know, these were men ask Richard. These were men that have all said the same thing. Had he lived, he would have been the greatest ever. That's insane. Mm, wow. That's a psychotic thing to say. And the greatest ever said it. And that's Richard. There is no greater. Yeah. Everybody owes a, a thank you to Lenny Bruce, but Richard is the best period. His work still holds up to this day. Whereas other legends from my generation who I would argue in court for, I'll listen to their records. I'm like, yeah, that don't hold up. You know what I'm saying? So, but Richard was the one. So, you know, there's no way that I'm going to put my feet on the same boards that he put his on. Like I almost said no to Saturday Night Live when I had to host that for um, a Miramax movie I did, Lorne and, 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 that piece of shit Harvey were friends. And so he was like, Hey, you got to put Freddie on, on SNL to promote this movie. 
And I was like, yo, you should have asked me. Uh, no, I'm not doing that. And uh, they were like, no, you got to do this. You, it's coming out against, I don't know what it was coming out against, but like, we need, you know, we need the push. We need the push. So I went and did SNL and uh, I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened. Like I have no, I have no memory. Like I legit had to just turn on a switch, go on autopilot and not be there because wow everything about it felt wrong. Like I didn't, I don't know, man, it's a difficult thing to verbalize. It was more just this numb kind of, I was in Hawaii when I was there. I, I'm not even joking. Like I was wow. on vacation in Hawaii the entire week I was Maybe in your dad filled in for you on that. <laughs> I've never even watched it. If it was funny, it was him. If it sucked, it was me. <laughs> I, I think it's crazy to think that Neil Patrick Harris and you went to the same high school. <laughs> Yo, he's the reason I went into drama class. No way. I'm not even joking, man. And I whipped a guy's ass one time for trying to talk trash on Neil my senior year in high school. What? <laughs> so it was La Cueva High School. And uh, I'm not going to say the guy's name because social media will get shamed. <laughs> but uh, I was a freshman or sophomore and Neil was a senior and already hyper successful. And he came back to the school on elective day to where kids get to like observe demonstrations of the elective so they can choose what electives they want to take. Do you want to take art, Spanish drama? Right. I went into the drama classroom because everyone was like, Oh, Neil's here. And I went in and he did this impression of Dudley Moore from Arthur. That was so on point. Like I could, I literally, and I love impressions, right? Like I, my mom let me spend a summer with Charles Fleischer. Okay. Because she wanted me to get to know my father. He's a crazy stand-up comic, borderline genius insanity and the voice of Roger Rabbit. And he got me really into voices at a young age. So I got good at it quickly. And I saw Neil do this like staggering. He's like, don't tell him I'm having a party. And he's just doing this great thing. And I was like, yo, I think I can do that. And I joined drama that year and I worked so hard, man. Mrs. Sullivan, shout out. I love you. God bless you. Um, I, I loved it so much. And it was because of him. And two years later, I come to LA. I'm in a hotel waiting to go to an audition. Um, and we're sitting in the lobby and he's sitting right next to me. And I look over and we didn't know each other in high school. Um, and I tell him, I go, hey, man, oh, my God, you're the reason I'm sitting here. Right. And it like blew him away. It's like, oh, my God, look, my eyes. And we start talking and getting along. Wow. And then we became friendly after that. Um, we don't have each other's phone numbers or anything like that, but anytime we see each other, it's always, it's all love and all friendship. But yeah, he's the reason why. And two years wow. later, my senior year, this guy was trying to talk shit and he caught a left hook. He went to sleep <laughs> and your boy had to go home for three days suspension. Man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're a lot of things to a lot of different people, depending on which movie that they resonate with, you know, the most, they relate to the most. For me, I played baseball growing up. So no you know way. Really? Yeah, I love those guys this. get so mad. It's not a documentary and it's a romantic. Oh, come on. Summer I'm like, Catch dude, your girl made you go. What do you think movie. it was going to be? <laughs> I love Summer Catch. And dude, I, I love making it, man. Ryan Dunn's an incredible, not just character, but just great baseball player, too. He was great. He was great. Not good. Great pitcher. His mental wasn't great, though. His mental was. was well, we below. see that at the end of the movie. <laughs> well, at least I smirked. Yo, so that day, yo, this is, this is so humiliating. All right, so. I'm not even going to preface it with I hadn't pitched in eight weeks because it doesn't. It wouldn't have mattered if I pitched every day and was on steroids. Um, so we go to the old Synergy Field, which is no longer there. It's where the Cincinnati Reds used to play baseball. And uh, they tell me, yo, you're going to 
get to pitch to Griffey. We're going to do this like final thing. He's going to take you deep. I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> so he shows up. His dad shows up too. They're wow. both there and it's on a game day. So we're just going to shoot it and then get out of there and they have a night game. Right. So I meet uh junior and being a junior, like we kind of have a cool, one of those conversations. We had the statue conversation that I mentioned mm. earlier. Yeah. And he was like, brother, he goes, I know how that feels. And I remember saying, I go, dude, you shattered the statue. I'm like, you're the only one, like you're the only one that's yeah. ever shattered the statue. And uh, so we're sitting there and we're doing our thing and they bring my double in to throw some, uh, some pitches and while I'm warming up and he's, you know, Griff's just crushing it. And I get in there and the first pitch I throw in, because <laughs> I'm a jerk, is a circle change. And I'm supposed to just throw a straight one down the middle, right? <laughs> so I throw a circle change. He still hits it, but it's foul. And his dad says, you swing like your mother. Okay. I look at his dad and I not like, I literally yell, shut the bleep up. Because now I'm dead, okay? Like, why are you going to piss off? I'm an amateur, if that, right? So my next pitch, I throw, and it's probably about 81, 82. And it's as hard as I can chuck it at this point. Batting practice for him. <laughs> and it's straight down the middle, though. I had, I had good accuracy, and I had good technique. They had pros teach me how to pitch. And he launches it. Bow, bow, four, five, six in a row, right? So then the director, Mike Tomlin, gets this idea. He sees on the, the green like wall, it says, welcome to Synergy Field. And he says, uh, hey, uh, Ken, do you think you can hit a home run over the welcome to Synergy Field side? And he goes, yeah, no problem. And now I'm just like, <laughs> you don't say it like that. Be more respectful. And he's laughing, right? And I'm just, you know, talking Kevin Hart trash back then. <laughs> and uh, so I throw my next pitch and very first, it's in the movie. Very first one, I throw it. It's a little bit low. Boom, right over the welcome to Synergy Field sign. And Mike goes, we got it, we're good. And Griffey went 0 for 4 that night. So the Milwaukee Brewers, you owe me a grat, you owe me gratitude, you owe me thanks because that night you won because of me. Quick time out from this chat to thank our sponsor, Blue Blocks, because like you, I have been spending far too much time since quarantine started staring at screens. I mean, almost all my interviews, including this one, are done on Zoom now. But I would notice that by the afternoon, my eyes would be feeling so heavy. And then when it came time for bed, I had trouble getting to sleep, which I thought was just because I was working too much. But it turns out it was from too much blue light. Blue light damages our eyes and leads to digital eye strain. Symptoms of digital eye strain are blurred vision, headaches, and dry, watery eyes. And for some people, it could even cause heightened anxiety, depression, and low energy. Well, Blue Blocks was created to fix this problem and block out the blue light with high quality lenses. Unlike other types of blue light glasses, Blue Blocks are evidence backed and they're made under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. They have over 40 frames to choose from and they come in prescription, non-prescription and readers. So they have frames for every need. The one that I wear, if you follow me on Instagram, you've seen this, it's called the Smith. Although I feel like it should be called the Clark Kent because I mean, could be my secret identity. When you put those glasses on, I feel like I you know, could maybe kind of look a little bit like Henry Cavill, but I just can't say enough good things for how much they've helped with eye strain and how much better I sleep at night. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Because of that. And you can do this too. You can get your energy back, sleep better, and block out all the unhealthy effects of blue light with Blue Blocks. Get free shipping worldwide and 15% off by going to blueblocks.com slash CVV. Or just enter the code CVV15 at checkout. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash CVV for 15% off. Or just use that code CVV15. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, this isn't a crisis line. This isn't self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with traditional therapy ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash insight and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So the special offer for anybody listening to Insight right now is 10% off your first month. Just go to betterhelp.com slash insight. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash insight. Growing up in high school, I got the greatest compliment of all time frequently. People would tell me that I looked like you. Dude, when this interview started, I was about to say, oh my God, look what you have to look forward to in 20 years. <laughs> Dude, it's I, you're only seven years older than me. Oh, so, well then you just have better genes than I do. This is me in seven years? Wow, it's like Bro, looking in a mirror. This is like, to quote Michael Keaton from Mr. Mom, it's in its transition phase. But when it comes in, man, whoo, telling you, Captain Graybeard's going to be in full of You're fight. a silver fox. <laughs> Dude, I've been silver since I was 25. It's just none of the movies wanted anyone to know. <laughs> 
it, I thought it was like the greatest compliment because you were such a heartthrob. And I'm like, oh, well, if I could have just love, 1% of what Freddie Prince Jr. had, well, I mean, I'm it's okay all, with that. It's all my mama, man. My mom's was gorgeous. I look like her. That's why we both look very feminine and, and pretty. <laughs> was it easy for you to slide into that role of being a heartthrob? I wasn't cool in high school. Um, so I was very, here's a funny story. I've never told this cause I was always too embarrassed and I was only asked in the twenties before I had dealt with all my shit. Um, so I was a scrub in high school. I had no girlfriend. Like if, if I went on a date it's cause they asked me out and that happened twice. Okay. So, and it's just cause I was too soft to do it. Like I just didn't have confidence with girls at all. If I wanted to take them out, I'd be like, this is the stuff I'm still into this today, by the way, I'd say, Hey, do you want to go to the arcade and, and play seven twenty? It was the skateboard game. Yeah. <laughs> they did skate or dog. And these bees would chase. I thought it was the greatest thing. So why wouldn't a girl like that? And they'd be like, no. <laughs> and so that was kind of after four or five of those, that was a wrap, you know, before the internet guys didn't know girls played video games. We couldn't find <laughs> y'all. And, uh, you know, I was born in the wrong time. So, uh, so I was very uncomfortable with it. And then we did, um, She's all that. And I had this like relationship with Jody Lynn O'Keefe's character. I don't remember the character's name. I think it was like Taylor or something like that. And uh, Jody had been in the business forever. She was on soap operas. So she had already had like 800 smooch scenes. And, you know, it was all good. I'd had one. Okay. I'd had one smooch scene on a tiny independent movie with Tori Spelling um, called The House of Yes. Okay. That was my experience with the ladies. Um, and it wasn't the best. And so all of a sudden we have to shoot all these, like these photographs that'll be on set to like showcase our relationship. Right. So it's all stuff that happened in the previous year. So it's just us and a photographer, no director, no Rob Iscove, no Arlie Fleming, no producers, no Rachel to get my back. She was my, she was so good to me, man. She's like my sister still to this day. She knew how scared to death I was every day on that set. She was the only one who knew. Um, and, and Jody. And so it's, we're on a beach and he's like, okay, so you guys need to kiss. I'm gonna get some photos of you kissing. And I literally, Jody looks at the color drain from my face and starts laughing, not in a mean way, but in an, oh my God, you've never done this way. And she's done it since she was 12. Right. Sure. And so, uh, I look at her and she just sees like the, the, the shame all over me. Right. And she puts an arm around me and she says, you don't have to worry about a thing. I had to kiss grown men when I was 16 years old. We got this. <laughs> I was just like, I, I, I don't, and she may have said eight. I don't remember what she said, sure. but she made me feel so comfortable. And I had to now smooch this chick that I had met the day before as if we had been together. And it, I was, it wrecked me. I'm telling you, man, I was pouring sweat, nervous to all hell probably hung out in my trailer and just didn't want to come out forever afterwards, deleted a lot of those memories like SNL, because it was just, it, I did not know. The answer is no. I never felt comfortable with that. Wow. Is there now it's easy. Is there a difference between kissing in real life and kissing in a movie? Like, is yeah, there a difference? You don't always like the person you're kissing. Well, sure. But like, is there like, do you have to like do more or less tongue, more or less lip? And is there anything different? It, it depends. I mean, I'm more robotic about it than most. I try to establish what's going to happen before we shoot so that the director knows where my hands are going to be. The actress knows where my hands are going to be. And then I know what you're going to do as well. Yeah. And I thought that was normal. Apparently I'm really weird 
because no one I've ever worked with has ever wanted to. They're like, uh, uh, oh, I thought we just we're go just going to kiss. And I'll be like, all right. I remember I did a, this weird sci-fi movie called Wing Commander and Saffron Burroughs and I have this like scene and uh, we do the kiss, right? And we stop and she looks at me and she goes, no tongue? I was just like, oh my God. I, wow. I, I, uh, I, you thought I just came from church. I was like, I, I didn't know. Uh, um, do we do? Uh, like, I just felt like a fool. And Matt Lillard's there like laughing at me, right? And so it's just, it, I was never good at it. And it, it was always way harder than it should have been. And I almost always worked with women who were awesome about it and didn't make me feel worse than I was already punishing myself. <laughs> Like I mentioned before, you're a lot of things to a lot of different people. Are you the she's all that guy to most people? No, Scooby. Scooby. Because the, the Scooby generation is more uh, prevalent on social media than right. people of my age or, or your age, right? So your age, I get a lot of she's all that love. A lot of she's all like well, seven that changed to ten years career, journey. right? Oh, yeah. That was it. I mean, that was the launching pad. Yeah. Wasn't I know you did last summer, it was that. Um, so that was to most people like when I was having my success and all that stuff. But now this new generation, it's all Scooby Love hmm. all the time. And I I've never even seen the movie. Like I've only seen two movies that I've been in. So people are always like, hey, man, what was the scene like? I was like, bro, I, you tell me, man. I read the script. I knew how it ended. I didn't want to see it. <laughs> and I, I guess there's now a small percentage of Star Wars fans thrown into this mix, right? But it's fringe, right? Like, sure. The animation world is a very different world. And, and Hollywood treats it differently as well. They treat the actors uh, poorly. Like, they won't allow, I shouldn't say this, but I'm, I'm going to because it's not right. Um, they wouldn't allow the voice actors from Rogue One to walk the press line at the same time as the live action actors. So there's this wall, right? And they're like, yeah. you don't, you're an actor, but you're not one of, you're a voice actor. And I, I hated that because some of those people were my friends, right? Yeah. And I remember when we were doing the, uh, the first season of the cartoon, you know, they don't pay these people anything. It's a, it's a quantity work. That's, that's how they have to go. And I shouldn't be saying any of this. Whatever. Um, so season two, I was like, yo, you're giving me a raise. Like, this is the biggest hit Disney Channel's ever had. Like, you got you're not even paying us scale. And like, well, no, it's it's the honor of working for Star Wars. And I laughed. I was like, yo, that's hysterical. It's show business. Which word's bigger? And uh I said, I'm I'm getting a raise, and that's it. And you're giving everyone else whatever you give me. And uh, so we renegotiated and made sure I made sure everybody else got that bump on the on the following years as well. Wow. Because it's just and I never knew this about the voiceover industry because I had never been involved with it. The only things I had done were like a video game that someone offered my manager and I happened to play the game, the previous one. It was called Mass Effect. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like one of my favorite games of all time. Yeah, yeah I'll do it. Um, but that was my only experience really, other than like a couple like tiny things. I had never really worked with voice over actors, which I just call actors. Um, it's so, it's so silly, but, um, he's a television actor. That was in the nineties. That's what it was. Oh, you don't want to yeah. work with her, Freddie. She's a TV actress. I'm like, what, what, what am I? You're a film actor. I'm like, yeah. Okay. Actors still in it, but whatever. It's shifted so much. Now people are like, I want to be on HBO. Yeah. Yeah, man. It just really shifted. But, um, oh, and you weren't allowed to do commercials in the 90s. Catherine Zeta-Jones right. was like, I don't give a shit about your rules. I'm yeah. going to do a huge one. And everyone was like, she opened the door. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, man. So it was, it's a, it's a 
tripped out world, but the Star Wars love has been, it's, it's weird. There's a lot of people well, that are angry the franchise didn't age at the same rate they do. And a lot of people that don't understand who it's made for, right? Like every generation needs its own Star Wars. So like when the second yeah. trilogy came out, people my age dumped on it, right? And then the new one comes out, people who love the second one dump on those. Yeah. So, but it's still consumption, right? It's complain, consume, complain, consume, but it's art. So if you hate it, you're right. It sucks. And if you love it, you're right. It's bro. There are Picassos that I've looked at and been like, man, that's trash, bro. I would right. pay a dollar for that. And there's others where I'm like, oh my God, I could sit here the rest of my life and just be happy. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. it's it's the internet has turned it into into commerce more than art, right? And so all the art has been removed and you have to sort of like pick a side as if it's a political topic. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not that into Star Wars anymore. I'm more uh, probably a Trekkie now. <laughs> wow. You know, it's it's Star Wars love, but also like a lot of backlash like for the, wow. And the they freak out said about the franchise made people very upset. Oh, they got, but, but I will say this, the people who were upset were the people whose cards that got pulled, right? Yeah. Like all I'm saying is if you're going to make a monetized YouTube channel, right. And you're going to talk about other people's content because you don't have any, <laughs> then, and you want me to respect you as a critic. All of a sudden, this isn't adding up, right? All I'm seeing are insults and you hate that women run it and all this kind of stuff. And this guy sucks and that guy sucks. But I'm not seeing any criticism. And you want to call yourself a critic. And, and yeah. if, that's, if that's what you want, cool. And I, it's, I'm an old school guy, so I don't hate the player. I just hate the game. I don't respect their hustle. I don't respect their game. I think it's transparent. And I just wanted to show other people how transparent it was by dropping knowledge. And it wasn't any of my opinions. It was all stuff from the people who created Star Wars. I was just dropping the stuff they dropped yeah. on me. And in since then, Dave Filoni said some of the same stuff I've said, and now people believe it. And in the years to come, they'll more of that stuff will get said. I just say stuff sooner than they want me to, so they get mad at me. Um, but yeah, they'll, they'll figure it out though. But again, it's art. So they didn't like the, I didn't, nobody, here's the best part. No one asked me if I liked any of the new movies. And I didn't, I didn't connect to any of, I liked Rogue One and the first 20 minutes of Solo because it was slow. Yes. They didn't show you anything, but you can't make movies like that today. Everybody, you need everything in that first act. Um, so it's, for me, an old school guy, I don't binge television shows. I like to wait a week. You know what I mean? Like, I like to discuss it with my friends as opposed to having a 12 hour session. I can't do that. There was a movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Marathon Dancing, where people would dance to death to make money during the depression. Video game streamers do marathons. I can't do marathon anything. Like I just, I like to take my time with stuff. But yeah, I didn't click with any of the new, the new ones. My kids did. So it's a great movie for me. It wasn't, who cares? There seems to be a lot of parallels in what you're saying to the wrestling world. A lot of parallels to people because think of how many people in 2021 are going, man, used to be better back then. And then everybody from the Attitude Era is going, man, used to be better back in the Hogan days. And I, I hated the Attitude Era. I thought it was, I'm the, I'm the only guy my age that, I thought it was- You are. I thought it was comical. I thought it was goofy. It looked like uh, all those talk show host TV shows where everyone just fights over like Richard Bay and Jerry Springer and yeah. all that crap. By the way, those shows killed the after school special. 
Um, I was in the very last one and we got canceled for, for Richard Bay. Um, it was me and Jessica Alba and I get her pregnant and I don't want it. it Summer was, cats again. It was this very is dramatic. It was all. Oh, no, it's Jessica but, Biel. But that was Jessica Biel, yeah. Stuff. I have so many Jessies in my life. Um, but yeah, man, wrestling's a trip because to me, it's one of the purest forms of art, that and stand-up comedy. And it's wrestling even more so because it's the literal translation of blood, sweat, and tears on a literal canvas. I mean, that's what they're wrestling on unless it goes outside the ring. Yeah. So I look at it for the art. I look at it for the storytelling. Um, I'll be real though. Like Friday Night Smackdown is way superior to Monday Night Raw right now. There are segments on Monday Night Raw that I can't stand and I wish I could fast forward. Then there's others where I see Randy do the mask kind of victim thing. And I'm like, like I like when they take shots. I'm one of the only guys that liked the Bray Wyatt, John Cena, crazy pre-shoot match. I thought they took oh, a I shot. I thought that was incredible. You know, it didn't work a hundred percent, but they took a shot and they both committed to it. And that's the most important thing in wrestling is if the wrestler's not able to commit to the idea or the gimmick, it won't work. And one of the frustrations I think fans have is the forcing upon these young talent gimmicks and ideas that they can't commit to because they don't have the experience, but they're too afraid to say no, because mm -hmm. if they do, they won't get called up. And that's just a cold business fact. I mean, it existed when I was there and it exists more now. I think they pull people up too soon. I think there's other people that should be pulled up that they never do. I don't like what they do with any of the Japanese talent. Um, there, I can critique it all day, but there's still so much the level of wrestling today, the level of athlete and their ability to tell a story when allowed is better than it's ever been in the history of the business. You have women doing stuff that Fly and Brian Pillman was doing only better. Like it's, ins it's insane. And there's more than just WWE now. And you have access to wrestling globally through the internet. And you can find these people. Trust me, WWE is trying to find them. Like... I, I'm thinking about starting a wrestling federation for crying out loud. I mean, I go to indie shows and I go to Brian uh, Kendrick's wrestling pro wrestling shows before COVID happened. And it's, it's like if the kids in the hall and, and, and Pat Patterson created a wrestling league in 1977 and you're just sitting there watching, it's hysterical. So wrestling to me is in some ways better than it's ever been, but mm. it's never going to be the eighties that's gone because once the secret is revealed the trick's no longer a trick. Yeah. There was there was a scene in that in that Christian Bale Hugh Jackman the Prestige. The Prestige. And he find and Christian Bale's character, the other brother, yeah, reveals the bullet catch to his brother's wife who would never give up the secret. And she's telling him he can't do the bullet catch unless she shows unless he yeah. shows her. And he sh and he friggin shows her. And then she literally blows it off. And it's yeah, like, goes, huh, oh, well, once you it? know it, it's not that huh. big a deal. That's what happened to wrestling. That's why guys like Dutch Schultz were the man, dude. Slapped across, I called him Dutch Schultz, but you know what I'm talking about. That's why when Schultz slapped that reporter in New York across the face and said, does that feel fake? That was a great day for wrestling <laughs> because he was protecting something magical and special. So the business is different. It's changed. It has to evolve. Believe me, I rewrite promos as I'm watching them, brother. I see people all the time like, yo, if I was writing for them, I, I know I could get them over. I know I could get them over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just based off what I did 
10, 12 years ago. Well, who, but, who's an example of someone 10, 12 years ago that you got over that without your help maybe would have struggled? Well, it was, it's always a group, right? Like there's sure, never one sure. person and only the talent can get themselves over. Okay. I've written some great promos, but the talent couldn't get it over. And I've also seen some horrible promos, but the talent was so good. You couldn't write them bad. Like they could just get anything over. Right. So when I started there, once I kind of had got my bones and, and did some good promos for big show, uh, they had just split up Paul London and Brian Kendrick. And I wrote a couple cool ones for Brian. And then I wrote an undertaker promo that taker said, that's who I want writing my promos. Right. So that gave me a lot of credibility. And that's when Freebird or when Michael Hayes came up to me and Krista Joseph, and they said, Jeff Hardy. And I said, what? And they go, you got to make him champion. And this was all, he's like, Freddie, I'm telling, they're like kids to him. He's like, now listen, you can do this. The boss loves you right now. You're going to write the story. We'll book it because you can't book for shit, which I can't still to this day. I can't book a match, but I can write you the promo that'll get your match over. I just need like a, like, like a legend to kind of book it for me. Right. Cause yeah. it's just not my, that's not my, my skill set. Um, but I can write any match you book. I can make people care about it. So Shoot, I'm a Mexican. Well, I know I better. Yeah, that dude had some trouble. So we're not going to talk about that dude. But I made Mexican people hate a Mexican wrestler in Arizona. Okay. Like that's hard to do, but I pulled it off. So, uh, so anyway, I start writing this story for Jeff and he had been in the news and, and he had been taking heat. And so instead of like hiding from that, I just kind of embraced it and called it this gray area, right? That he could exist in his imagination, right? And there is no black or white. And the people that commit to that world want to pretend people like me don't exist. But I'm going to show both sides that I do. And we started writing these promos for him. And I started working with him and talking to him about the feeling that we would do and the look that we would have to make it look creepy. And DJ, Krista Joseph, shot almost everything, um, including the London one, because I wasn't trying to go. Vince was like, what do you mean you're not going to London? I was like, I ain't leaving I'm not going to London, man. I wrote it. You guys deal with that madness. I want to fly on a plane with you for eight hours, bro. So that Chris shot it. Um, Freebird booked it and I wrote it word for, and they executed it beautifully and started with him and Taker and this argument that they were having from backstage and in the ring. And it sort of blossomed at Armageddon in this triple threat match that he ends up winning and then stands on top of the Armageddon sign and had his hands up and I'm watching from the wings. Like, is he going to fall? Of course he's not going to fall, but I'm still freaking out. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that was the one that probably, and I got the idea over <laughs> in the production meeting. A lot of people did not want Jeff to be champion and my whole strategy. And I, I've said this a couple of times, but it's show business. And one of those words is bigger than the other. And so that's my philosophy on a lot of, on a lot of pitches and a lot of the, the ideas in my head. Right. So I went to Vince after everybody said no. And I showed him Jeff's merchandise sales. Mm. And I said, yo, he's selling more than anyone, anyone by almost double. And there's no belt. on. There's no, belt. don't call it a belt. There's no title. <laughs> And so we go in and I'm sitting there and I, there's people in there working against me. Not everybody at the company liked me. It took about six months for people to like be really cool to me and start respecting what I was trying to do with, with the talent there. And uh, Vince looks over at Kevin 
at Kevin Dunn, and I don't remember who else was at the front table with him. I think it was Brian Gewertz. And uh, he goes, nobody touches Jeff till Armageddon. And I knew right there, I was like, he's winning the belt. He's winning the belt. I knew it right wow. away. And I'm like, this and Freebird's kicking my feet under the, t- or Michael Hayes is kicking my feet under the table because he knows if they see me react, they'll take it away, right? As Just to teach me a lesson because they're psychos. And uh, so I calmed myself down. And then some of the people that were mad at me stormed out. I stayed in. Vince looked at me, gave me a nod. And I knew we were gold. And so I just wrote it out from there and, and we got to make him champion. And I left the, the company shortly thereafter because my first child was born and uh, I got to be a dad. And then I made the mistake of, of going to SummerSlam when it was in LA. And I went early to just to say hey to some friends and Vince pulled me aside and uh, over to the ring and started talking to me. And he says, uh, he goes, yeah, God damn, you know, we'd love to have you back. And I didn't have a father, right? So if you call me son, mm. It, it's like, it's like a worm on a hook and I'm a hungry bass. Right. And I'm like, you know, Vince, I got my kids now. And he literally puts an arm around me. He goes, well, we could really use your son. And like with punky Brewster, I was like, yeah, okay. okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was it. And I was back and he made me do this like promo class where I taught everybody how to act doing the same acting class stuff that I did when I was 18 and moved out to LA. Wow. I think there's a lot of people that are going to be listening to this right now going, I didn't even, I didn't know. That Freddie Prince Jr. worked for WWE. What made you even want to start working there? I grew up loving pro wrestling. And I just, you know, I I knew that I could write. I don't want to sound like, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I knew I could write well. Okay. And I knew I could write well for talent. And I knew that I could hear them speak and write words that they would say instead of what sounded good in my head that I would say. Mm. And that's a hard disconnect for a lot of wrestling writers to make. And it's a step that television writers have to be able to make. Screenwriters have to be able to make. If all your characters sound like one writer wrote them, you failed. You failed. If the wrestler you're writing for sounds like you, you failed. You fa- you failed the wrestler. The writer's job is one per, and it's only 10% of the equation, right? Like it's, it's, it's 80% on the wrestler. It's, it's 15% booking and it's 5% writing, right? Like I've seen horrible promos get over because the talent's so money, right? But, you know, I I get sidetracked a lot when I talk wrestling because I really do care about it. But I knew that if I just sat with them, I could, here's the best example. MVP was at the, who's now holding raw together by himself, basically him and Alexa bliss. Um, so he was doing a, pro, a promo against Jeff. Uh, they had a match coming up. And he was writing a promo with Krista Joseph. Chris won't mind me saying this. And it wasn't working. Like, they just, they were both trying to figure it out. They had 100 notes from Vince that, that screwed them all up. And 100 other notes from other people. That's, it's just too many cooks in the kitchen, right? And I'm kind of sitting in the cut, just kind of like spying on them, right? And MVP hated me. Hated me. Did not want to speak to me, right? More than Cena. Cena didn't like me to the very end, right? And he was like, hey, that was a really good promo. And I just no-sold it. I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, so, but MVP hated me. And he was a legit wow. dude, right? So I'm hesitant to go up because I already know, like, his feelings about me. But I already knew how to fix the promo. Like, I had already written it in my head. I heard what the problem was. And I just knew. And so I was like, screw it. I'm going over. If I get in a fight, I get in a fight. If I get beat up, I get beat up. I've been beat up before. <laughs> so I go over there and I say, hey, you guys, I know I'm interrupting. I think I got this. 
And I just acted it out. I freestyled it right there. Right. And he looks at me and his look went from like, I'm going to kill you to hold up. Wait, say that last part again. Is that what he says to me? And so now I already got the, I got him on the hook. I just got to reel him in and not pull right. too hard. Right. He's the so hungry I, bass now. <laughs> so I, I cut the line again, but I cut it as it, I told you I'm good with voices. So I do this MVP voice. Right. And I cut it like he cuts it. And I go, you could take that as a line reading, or you could take it as, you know, inspiration, make it yours. I go, but I really think that'll help you. And he goes out and he cuts the promo and he kills it. I mean, kills it. And Vince went from not looking at him that highly in just a moment mm. to all of a sudden going, wow, this guy's sick on the mic. This is the guy that I originally signed. This, I forgot he could do this. And uh, I started, you know, getting a little bit of love from the guys after. I didn't tell Vince I wrote it. I said that him and, and DJ did it. And that got me some love from DJ and from him. You know, th that business is all about passing, knowing when to pass credit and knowing when to not let people take your credit, right? Yeah. So if it's a small thing, it's always like, nah, man, it's them, it's them, it's them. And if it's a big thing and people are trying to screw it up, that's when you got to step in and go, Vince, when I conceptualize this alone in the first place, the idea that you like, this is what we discussed. And we're getting sidetracked now because you're letting other people's opinions on this wrestler get involved with the creative process. And sometimes I would win that argument. More often than not, I would lose that argument because he goes with what he knows and he goes with who he knows. And he has a history with those men and he didn't have a history with me. So my victories were always surprising in the production office. And I had more than most, but, but it was always an uphill battle, always. <laughs> to this day, does Cena still have an issue with you? I'm sure he doesn't. He's, I'm sure he does. Check this out. This is how it started. He started off calling me Ashton Kusher. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah. And like Hollywood, right? And so I started like an acting class, like a promo class, basically. And this is what, like 2009? Maybe. Okay. I'm, I'm sure it's on the internet somewhere. <laughs> um, so I'm there and I have about, the class started and we had like two people. And by the time we left, I had like 80% of the roster. Okay. We'd, we'd literally have to take up the top floor of stadiums because I'd have like 40, 50 people in a room all trying to get time, right? It got hard. So we're in there and I would basically bring them scenes from movies that I knew they had liked. I'd say, hey, what are some of your favorite films? And then I would bring them a scene, a two-person scene, right, where they could act with another person. And I would show them how the actors in that movie broke it down based on my experience, right? Mm, how I yeah. think they broke it down. And I would then give them monologues from movies I knew they loved. So it would be easier for them to remember. And they would have a guide, like a great actor sort of like, giving them this guideline as, as far as, you know, what works. And then they can steal from that actor, make it their own. Or in some cases, if they didn't have the acting chops, I would tell them, just steal it. Who cares? Like, uh, Razor Ramon is, is Tony Montana. It doesn't matter. Like, you just got to own it. You have to believe in it, right? So we're doing a scene. I think it was uh, Edge's tag team, Cordona and, uh, and Zach, Zach, and Zach, yeah. Uh, Zach Ryder and Zach Ryder and uh, Ryder and, uh, and uh, what do they name his tag? You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. The 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 action figure dudes. I love those. Guys. Yeah, Kurt Hawkins. Kurt Hawkins. Thank you. So they're doing a scene from the first Bad Boys movie, right? And John walks in and totally like interrupts the class and just sandbags the whole thing, right? And I stand up and I go, "Hey, man, let me talk to you outside." Now, I'm not getting fired. I can say anything I want to this guy. The only person who can fire me is Vince, all right? And he's already empowered me enough that I know that. 
So we walk outside. I go, dude, what are you doing, man? And he, these are his words, not mine. He goes, well, maybe, you know, I'm a Neanderthal, but you either have it or you don't. And I go, brother, you have it. So you don't need to be here. But someone has to show these other people how to do it. And if you're not gonna, then who is? Mm. And he didn't say anything to me and he just walked away. Right. And I went back inside and everybody was like, dude, we thought you guys were going to fight. I'm like, shut up. We're not going to fight. We're trying to help you guys. So we got back into it. And, uh, and big show did Christopher Walken's monologue from Pulp Fiction. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And he just like, and he did it to Hornswoggle. Like Hornswoggle was the kid, the young Bruce Willis character. And I'm literally sitting, I was like, dude, that was sick. Um, and I wrote a promo for him the next week where he had to create this, describe this whole new match they were doing. And it was like three pages long and he storms in. And he's like, did you write this fucking war and peace? And I was like, dude, you did such a good job, man. I'll show, I'll break it down with you. We'll trim it up. We'll bust it out. And we did. And he did a great job with it. But yeah, man. So there were people there who definitely did not want me there, but I would, I can honestly sit here and say, if someone there didn't respect me by the time I left, they never made it public to me like by the time I left everyone that I worked with respected the hell out of me I've heard them say it publicly to my face I've never heard any of them say that when I left like I because I was I would go and ask questions man I would talk to Arn Anderson I would talk to Pat Patterson I would talk to Dean Malenko I would talk to these guys because I can't book and that would be my first look I don't know how to book a match but I can write you anything yeah you just kind of help me out with this and they get mad I I, I only asked 99 questions instead of a hundred because wouldn't anybody else ask him shit because they just a lot of the writers they were frustrated and they were just like let's just get through it he's gonna rewrite the whole show anyway so f it and my thing was like there's a reason my promos are getting on and and you yours aren't because he knows you're waiting for him to rewrite you and you don't argue when he does. And I'd be in there with, with him for 20 minutes. It, it, he'd be yelling at me. I'd be yelling back, you know? Yeah. But if you believe in an idea, you've got to fight for that idea. And beyond that, your sole function is to not get yourself over, get the talent over. And if you have a promo that can do it, it's your responsibility. Well, in my, I'm not trying to say what the laws should be. But for me, it was my responsibility to fight for that promo and that talent. I didn't always win. And it sucks having to go to a wrestler and go, it's dead. I had to do that with Hurricane Helm. Shane won't mind that I said this, but I had this whole like return of the re, 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 return of his character, basically. And we had all this like film noir, um, like comic book flash animation that was going to reintroduce him and it got killed. And I had to be the one to tell him. And that sucks. And I get why writers don't want to do it. But then don't take the job because it's a hard job, man. The wrestling business was the hardest job I ever had. And we started this conversation by me telling you I knew I could basically write better than everyone they had there, which I'm not trying to say I was a better writer than it because they had two good writers there who I really respected when I worked there, two of them. But that was it. That was it. Like they did, would write. Work, did working in wrestling make you not like wrestling as much? Because that's a pretty common thing with people who leave the business. So I didn't watch the product for about seven months when I left because I hated knowing careers were going to change based on the what happened in a match. Does that make sense? Yeah. Someone would give a bad match. And when I'd be in gorilla with Vince, that would be the end of that person's career. Like the storyline you had for them gone, everything gone because of a blown spot or a promo had a mistake and it was just gone because they were looking for a reason. The term they would use is called dead money. They'd say it's dead money. Stop thinking about it. 
I got told that multiple times. I just, I didn't care what anybody said. I didn't need the job. So I just never quit and just kept ragging on him until he yield just a little bit. You know, it, it, it's, it's a lot easier to be brave when you're, when you have a suit of armor, right? My sure. armor was, Elway. so you, you understand there were a lot of people there who needed the job and I didn't necessarily need the job. So it was a lot easier for me to stand up for myself. Yeah. I, I just know that like for as much as we love wrestling, once you peek behind the curtain, it's kind of like the wizard of Oz. Yeah. You go, Oh, it hurt me for about seven months. I couldn't really enjoy it, but, but I watch it now. My kids are what gave it back to me. Oh, okay. My daughter like watches when, it. When you're working in on a movie or when you're working on a television show, it's a very cohesive unit. Everybody's working together for the greater good of the show. Sometimes. <laughs> right. Sometimes. But in wrestling, everyone's working for the greater good of themselves. But but that's the job description. So that shouldn't be put on the wrestlers, right? Like they have to. It's when that philosophy that you just said is wrapped around everyone else in the company. And it is, and you're right. And the people that call them out on that are correct. That's the problem. That's the problem. I mean, it, and it was a speed bump that I hit every every single week when I worked there. And I was on the jet with Vince for every episode. I made every live show. I just didn't go overseas. That was it. And it would drive him nuts. But mm -hmm. I was there all the time. I, I witnessed this stuff happen all the time. I saw people's careers get made and destroyed on a whim. I would, I would fight sometimes and Vince would laugh. He would, yo, there was a, I don't know. Can I tell it? I'll tell it. All right. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, this is going to be tricky. I got to cloud some of it or people figure out. Okay. So there was somebody who worked there when I worked there. Um, oh, this is tough. And they, they took charge of another division within the company. One that Vince didn't care as much about. And I noticed that the product they were purchasing were simply old products that this person had done and then simply put a different name attached to the product. So it was basically selling his own stuff to the company. And I knew what their budget was and it was a lot. So we'll just throw out a number, $20 million. Okay. Sure. And uh, we're on the tarmac and I said, Vince, you know, this guy is just giving you, stuff that it's already been rejected and it's $5 million a pop for these. That's, that's $20 million, man. And he looks me dead in the face and he goes, Freddie, it's $20 million. Get on the fucking plane. <laughs> and I literally was like, can I, can I have his job, please? Can I, can I, I have a bunch of scripts that suck. Like, come on, man, what are you talking about? But his mind is wrestling all the time. Huh. His, 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 his way to fix the problem is, 80s Reaganomics, money that's fixed every problem the company's ever had. So when you present a creative solution to a problem, it's a much harder boulder to roll up the hill and you start to feel like Sisyphus. And you, where you, it's not just that it's going to roll down. His story was he was cursed to roll it up, even though he knew it was going to roll all the way back down. And that's what you deal with as a writer in that company. And that's why it breaks so many of them and they won't fight because it's just this treadmill of doom <laughs> <laughs> but whether but you it's still the my favorite job i've ever had man i swear to god whether you love him or you hate him vince mcmahon is a I genius him. i love him he what, understands what, psychology 
at a level that he'll never get credit for, never get credit for. For better or worse, his understanding of the human condition and that there are no good or evil people. There are just people whose morality shift depending on how much pressure they are under. And that is a direct quote that I will never forget from VKM. So it is, I mean, it's that shellfish in a bucket philosophy and he's not wrong. There's genius psychiatrists that think the exact same thing. So it's, you know, his understanding of how to market to the different territories, who's going to win in those territories, what kind of match they're going to have in those territories. It is next level genius. And I'm next level idiot when it comes to that. (laughs) You know what I mean? But his understanding of like acting and, and writing and those types of things is also locked into the eighties. So that's where he lacks, right? Like mm. that's his, his, his shortcoming. So, and that's why you want balance in wrestling, right? Because you need those minds that can book and understand how to book where this match will have the most impact, where it won't, why you can't have a steel cage every week because it like all these philosophies, 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 philosophies are virtually impenetrable, but their lack of understanding of storytelling outside the ring is really where I think they they struggle. And I think that's where most of the criticism comes from, except for the wrestlers that people just want to hate for whatever reason, legit or, or non-legit. What do you think happens when, you know, when Vince eventually ends up passing on 10 years, 20 years, a hundred years from now, who knows? Never. He's RoboCop, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he's going to, yeah, he's, he's going to live forever. What do you He'll think? I live you and I, but yeah. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, what oh, do you think? What but, happens to WWE then? Man, I mean, this is kind of crazy. So instead of taking salary when I worked there, I took stock. So my whole salary was stock. Oh, wow. Um, and we just sold it uh, last year, like right right before. COVID. At like $45? It was a lot. And I got it at like nothing. Because um, it was nothing in 09 or 2010. Sure, so yeah. It, the stock, it, yeah. It's... But I, I believed in what I was doing at the time. and. And I believed in the, and I believed in the company. I I just, I believed in the company. Um, So I saw them selling stock, right? Because he was purchasing the XFL at the time and and all that stuff. And so I thought they were getting ready to sell the company. I was like, yo, this might not be with their family in 10, 15 years. Hmm. This may go to like the, when when Fox bought the Dodgers, right? And then I saw Fox buy SmackDown and I was like, Dude, I think Fox is going to buy WWE. I seriously do. Because they were selling stock, Hunter and and Vince, both. Mm. And so I had sold all, and that was public. That's not like a secret. Um, and so I sold all my stock and 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 cashed out and then just kind of like sat back and waited. So half of me thinks that Hunter will take over, which would be good for the business, even though I wasn't Hunter's favorite, favorite person. Um, and we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. His his mind for wrestling was sick. Like even if I disagreed with him, I still was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. I just don't, I just would rather do mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so we just liked our own shit more, but he can do everything. He can book, he can write, he can act, he can, he can conceptualize just ideas. You know, like, how do you come up with the fiend? You know what I mean? Like Bruce Pritchard had to conceptualize it or Bray had to, con- somebody had to conceptualize it before anything was ever written. Hunter can do that. He can write, he can wrestle, he can teach, he can teach, not tell, teach. And again, this is somebody who probably doesn't even like me that much, but I'll still say 
great things about it because it's true. Like I've, I've watched him do it backstage. I've seen him show guys how to work their way through, through promos. I've seen him work with the women in such a respectful way. So if he takes over, I think the wrestling business would be in the perfect hands. Mm. And I think you would start seeing much more of the television promises you get, right? Like when the McMahon family says, Oh, we're going to listen to the fans. No, they're not. That's just a promo. But when Hunter's there, he already knows what y'all want. And he's, going to be more able to give that to you if it doesn't go that way if it does go by the way where like a conglomerate buys it like a rupert murdoch or a fox then it's done it is done and that product will suffer the same way the dodgers sucked because it's just an acquisition it's an act it's not something they care about it's simply a business acquisition that's why when basketball teams get sold all these new billionaires it's a toy to them it's not something they care about it's not like the, the bus family, right? Like Jeannie Buss, that's her life. Like the Lakers are her life. She's not selling the Lakers. Like that's not going to happen because she cares about it. It's like the McMahon family. So if, they, if they're not connected in some way via marriage or blood, then I don't see it doing well. Because once it's corporate ownership, I mean, it's hard enough to make wrestling in a publicly traded company yeah. when, you have, when you have shareholders to deal with. You know what yeah. I mean? There's a reason that it's licensed to USA and they don't own it. That means that they kind of own WD sort of owns them in, in some respect. Like right. they're not beholden to notes the way a television series is yeah. like USA can't say, you know, we'd really like to see a story. Like it doesn't matter what you want. Like it's just quote the rock. It doesn't <laughs> matter what you want because it's just licensed and someone else will buy it. So, and they need content. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing, you know, and it's a huge show for them. Cause it's not, it's non-union. It's not SAG. So I don't have to deal with any of that. Like yeah. they just have the licensing rights to air a show where all the suits make more money than everyone else. And that's every business, but you know, that's another, I mean, you're clearly still super passionate about wrestling. I what love made, wrestling. What made you quit? <laughs> I, I had, I had, uh, there was a show called, I think it was called tough enough. And they tried to bring it back and stone cold was a judge. And there was a mom that wanted to be a wrestler and she said she was doing it for her kids. And Steve Austin said, that's bullshit. He said, you know how many times I won father of the year? And he put a big goose egg up. And I was watching that show in the writer's room and I stood up and I walked to gorilla and I gave Vince my two weeks and said, I'm trying to win father of the year, man. I can't work here anymore. And he said, talk, talk to me after the show. And uh, I talked to Stephanie after the show. He had to, he got in the got in the limo and was flying back to Stanford, and I was flying back to LA. And I let her know, and she was like, "Man, we were about to give you SmackDown, and you were going to be the head writer." She's like, I "Can't believe," and she was disappointed, you know. And I was like, "Look, I, you know, I love you guys, but I'm a dad, and I'm out." And that was that. And I quit, and I never looked back. There's times that you know that I see wrestlers, and I go, "Man, I could write for them so well," but I, you have to give in order to make. In order to work in the wrestling business or be successful, you have to be willing to give everything. It's, it's commitment. It's all your time. It's all your energy. I mean, I've written a couple sneaky things for friends that have gotten on. You, you, you know what I mean? So over the last few years, and I just say, hey, tell them, tell them you wrote it and, you know, get, your, get yourself over and, and do your thing. And I've seen it on TV and been like, oh, well, I kind of screwed it up. But yeah, okay, I see what they're <laughs> trying, trying to do here. But I could never it wouldn't have ever been as good as if I had written it and I was in Stanford taking the train up like I did every day from New York and taking that train back every day home. I mean, five days a week, I took the train from Manhattan to Stanford, Connecticut, there and back. And on that train, I would just put on headphones 
and I would write wrestling. Well, the, and I would get home and I would write wrestling. The, I would wake up, I would write wrestling. The difference between you and some of the other people who work behind the scenes there is you don't need the money. You know, but you, that's you why and your I wife are fine. Other people, it's a job for them. Yeah. And they have to protect themselves. And that's why they can't. So it's not just on them. You know what I mean? Like it is, but I just want people to have an understanding as to why they don't shout as loud as the people on the internet shout. Because yeah. the people on the internet don't have to take care of their kids with a check that comes from WWE. Yeah. And these people do. So when you get told no, you go, okay, yeah. And that was one of the reasons that Stephanie told me I should work for her dad. She's like, you'll say no, but you'll have a, you'll have an answer. Yeah. You'll say this sucks, but you'll have a fix and you won't be scared to do it. And she was right. Yeah. And she encouraged me to do that. She said, he needs those voices. He needs voices that argue shit. Him and Pat used to argue back and forth all the time. And they made great wrestling, Freddie. So don't be afraid to do this. She's really the one who, who empowered me the most to do that before anybody else said, hey, make sure you believe in your ideas. That was all Steph, all Steph. Because I probably would have shown him uber respect, which I did, but uber, uber, like where it's too much respect, right? Right. And Steph, Steph got me hot to that. She's like, no, 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 don't do that. Be yourself, be real. Talk to him the way you talk to me. And I think you'll do well. And she was dead on, dead on. I've loved this. I feel like we could talk about wrestling for like eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we really will next could. time. We, yeah. I mean, all we did was scratch the surface. Oh. We just scratched the surface. No, this I, mean, was... I could tell you some stories that, I mean, there was the pitches that I would get from some wrestlers were so crazy. Some were so amazing. Some I'd have to kind of teach them how to conceptualize these ideas. But I had one guy that wanted to be an astronaut and fly in from space every ring. And I said, okay, what's the like, what's the motive behind that? And he goes, man, it just looks sick, right? You got to tell us who it is now. <laughs> no, I can't. Dude. I can't throw people <laughs> under the bus I, like that. I thank <laughs> I like you. Thank you for this amazing <laughs> conversation. Thank you also for giving me a glimpse into what my future is physically going to look like. <laughs> yeah, sorry, bro. <laughs> I'm going to be that handsome. Amazing. And uh, kind words. And I end sorry every for the light. Day. It's the only room I can do this in, and I have skylights. Yeah. So and I, I, there's no shades for him. So you're getting all this weird light. This whole yeah. If you room. lean so in sorry. right now, it's like God is like touching you. <laughs> I I'm all about gratitude and I end every interview talking about gratitude. And I say that if you can be grateful, you will live a great life. So I want to know, Freddie, what are three things that you're grateful for in your life right now? You got it. Um, the first we discussed at length and that was the, uh, the sort of father figures that I had to kind of let me know what was right, what was wrong, how to accomplish my goals at a very early age. A lot of people give advice and they never tell you, like, if you didn't learn this when you were eight, it's going to take you a lifetime to figure out. They just want your money because they're selling you a book. Um, so I had men that really cared about me and looked out for me. So I had mentioned their names earlier. My uncle, I call him Uncle Bob. He's my godfather, Bob Wall. Always been grateful for him. Always been grateful for my uncle Jimmy, who I was named after. That's the James in my name. He was a Vietnam vet. He was the man who taught me how to treat women, how to treat them with respect. His sister was my mother. So you damn well know that I did that. And this one time, man, my mom had this boyfriend and homeboy hit me. I was 13 years old, closed fist, punched me in the face. And my uncle Jim, he's a Vietnam vet, black belt, no joke kind of guy. He came home. I, I didn't even cry or get mad because I knew my uncle was coming. And I knew what was going to happen. My uncle Jim comes. I told my uncle James. I go to school that day, Eisenhower Middle School. This was the seventh grade in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Rode my bike home. 
My Uncle Jimmy is there on the front porch. Come with me in the garage. My mom's at work. Okay. Go in the garage. Son of a bitch is duct taped to a chair. Already has the shit kicked out of him. And my uncle goes, either you hit him or I'm going to hit him again. I was 12. I was too scared to hit a grown man. He goes, all right, but you still got to watch. Boom. Cracks him one more time. Homeboy drops down. Takes me back inside the house. When my mom comes home, she asks, I'm not going to say his name. She asks where, we'll say Joe, where's Joe? And my Uncle Jimmy says, you broke up. He comes back here again. We're all gone. Wow. I was just like, dude. So he taught me how you, about respect and things like that also. And then the third thing that I'm, that I'm most grateful for is my children. They, they breathed a lot of life into me my whole life, never getting to have a father. It was all about becoming one one day. I always, you know, when I, when I was a sixth grader, I was sleeping over at my buddy Chris Sandoval's house and I woke up and it was late. It was probably like 11 o'clock at night and uh, he wasn't in the room. And that's must've been what woke me up. I heard some noise and I walked into the kitchen and him and his dad were in there and they were eating milk and cookies. And they didn't see me. I was in a hallway. It's dark, right? They just had a little light on in the kitchen. And I had never been like genuinely jealous of a friend in my life. I got jealous like any other kid did. He got that toy. I wanted that. But this was like someone I knew and loved. And I was like angry and jealous. I was 12 and just discovered what, you know, testosterone is as you start to hit puberty. Right. And so real emotional. And I went back in his room. I started crying. And I made him call my mom to pick me up to, uh, to take me home. She didn't get there till like 1145 and drove me home. She was super mad. And then she saw what I was so upset about. And I said, I just want to have, oh, I'm going to cry. I just want to have milk and cookies with my dad one day. And uh, I remember the look on my mom's face. That's why I'm getting upset because it just broke her heart, right? Broke her heart. And uh, I remember the first time Charlotte came into my wife's in my room, it was like, we put our kids to bed early. So it was like 9.45. And she says, Daddy, I can't sleep. And I literally was like, Phew! and jumped out of bed and was like, I got you, baby. And we went right downstairs and we had milk and cookies, man. And I just had this like, oh, I'm getting too choked up. But wow. I just had this like beautiful moment with her that I always wanted to have reversed. But because even though it was the other way, it was even better than if I would have had it. So those kind of moments is really just keep me grateful and know that I was on the right path is constant confirmation that the choices I made were the right choices in my life, the right choices for my career. Um, I've had zero regrets, man, which is so rare in this business. I mean, zero always treated people good. I always did the things that I thought were right. They didn't always work out. I've plenty of failures more than more failures than successes, but those failures are all lessons and they build you unless you keep making them over and over again. Um, so painful or not, man, like I've learned a ton. And, uh, once I hit 40, just life got a lot easier for me, man. I just started other than me not being able to light an interview. Um, but yeah, man. So those would be the three things I'm most grateful for, man. My godfather, my uncle and my kids, um, and my Xbox, you gotta have number four. I'm always grateful. <laughs> that could be the honorable Xboxes. mention. Yeah. You gotta have a little honorable mention in there, man. Gotta have some Xbox. <laughs> Thank you for this amazing conversation. And I, Dude, I just want to acknowledge you, you for an amazing career and an amazing life. Appreciate you, man. I've been 
like I said, dude, I've been real, real blessed and, and I'm very aware and, and grateful for it. And those, those amazing people are the reason I'm, I'm here. We'll talk again and we can get into anything you want, man. I, I will I, see you at wrestling shows in LA. Yeah. When they open our damn city up, man. I swear. Well, you know, that'll be in like five years at this point. Yeah. See you in 2030. It'll be great. You'll have this beard and mine will I'll be look down here. just like this when I see you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, brother. That's right. All right, dude. I love your be great, be grateful sign down there. I love that you have a championship belt. Kind of wish I had one. And, uh, you know, Emmys are what they are, but wrestling titles are way better. <laughs> Thank you so much, brother. You got it, man. Thank you. There we go. FPJ. And I have been such a fan of his work since I was 13-ish. So to be able to spend this time talking to him about absolutely everything, including wrestling, was so, so cool. What a great guy. And I told him this story after we were finished recording, but I figure I'll share it with you. I should have shared this during the interview. But I saw the movie I Know What You Did Last Summer when it came out. I was 14 when it came out. And I saw it at the movie theater at the mall. That was like a 10-minute walk from my house. And I was so scared by that movie that I swore, when that movie was over, I swore that a man with a hook wearing a trench coat was following me home. I was turning around all the time like, I I swear, I swear I see him. I swear I heard him. I was so scared that I ended up sprinting my way home. (laughs) Yeah, and I got home like completely out of breath. My mom's like, what? What? What Why are you so out of breath? Didn't you just go see a movie? Take a screenshot. Let us know that you were listening to this one. A lot of great WWE insight in that conversation. What a great wrestling mind he has. Tag me. I'm at Chris Van Vliet when you share this on social media. Tag Freddie on Twitter. He is at RealFPJr on Instagram. He's at RealFreddyPrince. And since we talked about the late, great Muhammad Ali in this interview, and we heard that amazing story from Freddie, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Ali who said, don't count the days, make the days count. How good is that? Be great. Be grateful. We'll see you on the next one for some more insight. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.